and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. I wanted to start this morning just by repeating a story that I did share in December because it's been in me again all week this week and felt really important to start the morning. So it's very short and then I'll share two thoughts on the back of it and then we'll sing and hand over to Rob. There was once a bird who lived in a tree. The bird was named Faithful. From the time she was a tiny hatchling, her parents used to sing a song every morning. The song was called Home, but Faithful thought Home was the name of her tree. Even after her siblings fledged and flew away, Faithful never ventured far from the nest. It was all she had ever known through the spring and summer of her life. To her, it was home. Fall came, the leaves changed from green to amber, rust, pumpkin and scarlet. Home has never been more beautiful, Faithful thought. I'm so glad I stayed. One day, gusty winds blew and a hard, cold rain fell, and one by one, the leaves flew off the tree. After the storm, Faithful became worried. Home has never been so ugly, she said. She looked up and saw other birds flying. She wondered if she should join them. Would it be safe? Would her tree survive without her? Would she survive without the tree? What would her parents think after providing such a beautiful nest in this tree called home? To stay or to leave, it felt like the biggest choice she would ever make. One morning, her brothers, one of her brothers, Adventure, flew in and perched on a bench beside her. I've been looking everywhere for you, he said. It's time to migrate. I don't know what to do, Faithful said. I don't know if I should stay home or leave. Adventure cocked his head. Faithful, I think you're confused, he tweeted. Home isn't the name of your tree. Home is the name of your song. Wherever you sing your song, that is your home. Now, there were just two things that I wanted to share from that story this morning. The first is that we can have confused things over the years. We can all have done that. We can have heard something attaching us to a truth, a home that we become so beautifully faithful to and honouring of, that serves its purpose very well, but turns out not to be the complete story. And we can stay there too long and miss that there is more. Which leads to the second point, which is that adventure comes looking for us. Utterly bewildering at times, perhaps unthinkable outside of our previous experience, but there is a call, and for some of you, that spirit of adventure may be more recognisable in the language of Jesus when he said to so many, follow me, 
And so we here are on an ongoing quest to discover what this adventure and follow me looks like now. Not locked in a back then, nor in some future destination, but now. And so my prayer this morning is that each one of us, as Rob speaks, will hear some adventure calling and not be afraid, but have ears to hear. Thank you for listening. It's really nice to be back in York. We've been here for a week. And I'm just, I'm just adapting to people I don't know speaking to me and not thinking they want something. So uh, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So, we all know the story of Easter. We all know that God came to us as a rabbit and he called some chicks to himself and made chocolate freely available to all of us. So there's a sense in which we don't need to talk about it. Uh, but perhaps we do. Perhaps we do. Now, I have to, have to come out with a confession uh, Lindsay and I have been on a pilgrimage, and I can't see you, so I can't see your eyes rolling, but it's kind of, okay, the Church of England guy's been on a pilgrimage. Um, can we have the slides? If I told you, though, that the pilgrimage was from Graceland to Dollywood <laughs> via Nashville, maybe you'd forgive me. So we hired a pickup truck, and we drove across. Uh, Lindsay's a massive Elvis fan. And then we ended up at Dollywood, and actually, we did a big miscalculation, because Dollywood was closed on the day we intended going. And so we ended up with a very crushed visit, and then a day where we didn't know what to do. And we went to Christ in the Smokies, and that on, on the right-hand side for you is the final installation. Think Madame Two Swords meets your children's Bible meets 1960. <laughs> and uh, that was the final installation where a hydraulic Jesus moved upwards through the cotton wool um, to ascend and I found, it, I found it funny, and then I felt very guilty about finding it funny. And then I realized, this isn't the real Jesus that I'm laughing at. Sadly, despite all their great intent and all the work, this white hydraulic Jesus going up through the cotton wool is not the real thing. But who is the real Jesus? And that's a question that, as I've prepared this talk, is more mysterious and complex than I've ever thought. Can we have the first clip? Can you believe that was a play um, first put on in 1971? And the film is from 1973. I was four years old. Um, but... It was very controversial because everything that depicts Jesus is very controversial, not least because they forgot to wear many clothes, but I guess it's hot in the desert and it was 1973. 
But I've watched it again. It's 50 years old, of course, um, about, I think, last year. And there's something that it does capture that I think is very powerful, which is why I've used it this morning. But let me just put this to you. There comes a point where you have to get off the Jesus bus that someone else is driving. And when you saw the bus arrive and all the actors are on it, they actually all look the same. They were just all in their stuff. But as they got off the bus, they actually began to firstly unpack a few things, but then they started to define themselves as different from one another to some extent, but they were defining their relationship with Jesus through the different props and clothes that they were putting on. And there comes a point where we have to define ourselves in our relationship with Jesus and not just be driven on the bus that someone else is deciding where it's going. Let me get back on the bus and then switch the metaphor. I want to suggest this morning that there is a kind of walled garden of belief that the church has created. It is walled off, and inside it are very, very intensively cultivated plants. And I think a good clue as to what's in the walled garden would be found in the creeds. Now, the creeds were developed over about 800 years of very intense discussion across seven so-called ecumenical councils. And they cover the nature of Jesus, his birth, death, resurrection, his role in salvation, and his expected return. Could we have the Nicene Creed up? That is the next one, I think. So this is one of the creeds. Um, we say it quite regularly in our service in the Church of England. It's part of the standard liturgy. And you can see I've highlighted the key, the key words of what it's covering. The nature of Jesus as the Son of God, salvation, crucifixion, resurrection, and return. And just in full disclosure, I have no issue with any of the four main creeds. I think they're important technical and historical documents. But, three buts. Number one, they are the product of human endeavor. They did not fall out of the sky from God. In fact, this creed is largely there to oppose Arianism, a form of heresy, and yet it was drafted by a man called Eusebius who was an Arian, and it was altered by somebody else. And I think it's just really important that we understand the human process behind things that are now very abstract, and we don't think about them. Second thing, they're expressed in the language of Greek philosophy, which is not um, a neutral medium in itself. And I personally find expressions 
of theology in Greek philosophy to be rather cold, abstract, and detached. God doesn't feel very close, often when expressed through those formulations. And then thirdly, and actually the main point, is the creeds, and this is sometimes called the great comma, they move from Jesus' birth to the last week of his life, separated by a comma. The creeds do not cover the life and ministry of Jesus. And so there's a vast space left out by the early theological formulations of the church because they were trying to figure out who Jesus was, by and large, and it took them nearly a thousand years. So inside the walled garden are highly cultivated plants, but of very particular varieties. But you say, well, surely the Bible and the Gospels are in the walled garden. Well, I've just read the Gospels afresh. There's a new version uh, by Sarah Rudin, who is a, she's a Quaker, but she isn't a theologian. She's a classicist, and she reads the languages and translates other works. And so she's translated the Gospels without a theological system that she's trying to impose on it. And I have found that to be extraordinarily powerful and incredibly elusive. Because Jesus taught mostly in parables, not propositions. His teaching is ambiguous and sometimes we might even say today encrypted. Jesus himself says that the parables were designed so people would not understand unless they had an open heart. And so if you like, having an open heart is the encryption key to Jesus' teaching. But it's far from obvious and in Jesus' greatest talk, the Sermon on the Mount, there are currently 36 interpretations as to what he meant by what he said. And I defy you, if you read it again, to turn that into some kind of religious dogma. It just cannot be done. And so it's my contention, having looked at all this afresh, partly just in preparation for today, I think most of what's in the Gospels is outside of the walled garden. And the church doesn't talk about it that much. We're very focused on Jesus' birth and death, his role in salvation, his resurrection and coming again. But there was an awful lot more, and some of it if you forget you've been reading it for years and years, as many of you have, is pretty mind-boggling if you come at it afresh. So there is plenty to explore outside the walled garden, even in the Bible. But of course, we just go on one. Can we just go forward one slide? There we go. Outside the walled garden, apart from things in the Gospels, we're joined by Jesus' personas from history, from tradition, from the Gnostic Gospels, from religion, from art, from culture, and sometimes simply from human imagination. 
There are many, many Jesuses out there vying for our attention. I've just picked three. There's probably 300. The first one's mystical Jesus. There's been a mystical tradition around Jesus since the book of Revelation all the way through to Richard Rohr. And I know you've looked at the universal Christ. That's the tradition unbroken uh, since just after Jesus' life. What about Jesus as seen by other religions? Jesus features in many other religions, and I was reading a fascinating book suggesting Jesus is turning up in visions and dreams in other religions, and people are building some kind of relationship with him from within the religion that they're still in. And then finally, that's homeless Jesus. It's a Jesus statue. Um, these are popping up all over the world. Jesus had a bias to the poor and those in need. What does that mean for us? So these are huge topics. We could get lost in these for months. And they're all outside the walled garden. There's no creedal formulations that help us work out what these mean. But then the territory gets a bit rockier. Can we have the next one? What about the claim that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had a daughter? Of course, that was popularized by Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. I actually went to Roslyn Chapel, and uh, they told me in there that tourists come in and ask to see certain things from the book that don't exist. And when they say they don't exist, they accuse them of being part of the conspiracy of the Catholic Church. Is Jesus anointing the presidency of Donald Trump? Is Jesus, in fact, an alien? And was his coming an alien visitation? So the problem is, the dilemma we face, the thing we have to figure out is... How do you decide, or do you decide? Okay, so opinion warning. Other opinions are available, but I'm about to tell you something about where I'm at. And of course, this time next year, when you don't invite me back because of the length, <laughs> the length of this talk, um, I might have changed my views. So we're all on that journey, we know that but I actually can't simply allow all these things to be somehow equally valid. I can't... It's appealing, isn't it? It's appealing. You say, well, we just respect everyone's opinion. If you want to believe that Jesus is an alien, that's fine. And yet, I actually can't quite do it. Could we just move on one, please? Things are pretty open outside of the garden, so it's not like we're facing all these dogmas and doctrines and central beliefs. We're having to figure it out. But I cannot treat Lauren Bobert's suggestion that had Jesus had an AR-15 assault rifle available, maybe he wouldn't have died as 
a statement made recently, I can't, I can't come to terms with that alongside blessed are the peacemakers. I can't do it. And I feel like I have to choose. And if you have to choose, how do you choose? And I'm using three things to navigate me. And there are other approaches to this, and you may have a different one. And I'm not trying to impose it on you. I'm just trying to tell you, partly so you understand what I'm doing next, and partly just because it's interesting to find out how other people are navigating their journey. So the first is the wisdom of Scripture. I don't consider Scripture to be a textbook, a rule book, a dogma book, something dictated by God, because I don't think the Bible claims to be any of those things. But it is a library capturing the experience of many people in different times and cultures and their experience of God and the way that they interpreted it. Because the quest that we are on is a quest that many other people have been on too. And I think the Bible provides us with extraordinary insight into other people's quests. And actually, what I love about the Bible is it, it discloses as much about what went wrong as about what went right. And I, I, think there's, I think there's wisdom in there for us. We can talk about inspiration another day, if there's another day. The guidance of the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking here necessarily about God told me what's true, and it happened to be exactly what I believed, so that's really helpful. I'm not talking about that. But Paul talks about the spirit joining with our spirits. And if you really look into what that means, it's like a second opinion. So if someone's saying something to you that you're not sure about, and you look at them, and they go, I think it's okay. That's the sense that's the sense, because I believe that truth has a resonance. I think it has a feeling to it. I think there's something um, about truth, the ring of truth. And I think the Spirit is still guiding us into truth. And then finally, and this has become a really big deal in academic circles, the wisdom of the community because we've figured out that actually all of us have got prejudices and blind spots and experiences that distort our view. So we need each other. I need you to tell me, I think you think that because of such and such. And I can say, well, maybe that whole idea of yours is because of this. And there's a, a sense of collectiveness that's emerging. And this is very exciting in the context of Q Church, I think, because we're better to be working it out together. I love your discussion weeks that you're doing. I haven't been to one, but I love the idea of them. They might be terrible, of course. Yeah, but <laughs> where you're trying to work it out together, what does it mean? I think that's such a powerful thing. And so what have we got? We've got the Bible and its wisdom. We've got the Spirit leading us into truth and giving us the ring of truth. And then we have each other. We have each other to share a quest with. And so I no longer believe in truth with a capital T available to us in an unmediated way. I did used to believe that. I don't believe it now.
But I do believe in truth with a small t. Truth that is partial, provisional, and fallible. But truth nonetheless. That we learn to move towards and recognize together. Because I don't think our language, our finite brains, anything that's written down can contain the whole of the truth of this universe, of God, and this morning of Jesus. So there's my confession. I haven't felt any stone start, so I'm going to carry on. But I promise you, I'm nearly at the end of the first section, and I also promise you this is the longest one. All right, so next slide, please. So you might have remembered Jenny's Is Jesus leading us up the garden path? I think so. I think Jesus is leading this community of Q Church up the garden path, that's the walled garden path, and out of the gate to explore some of the wilder territory of what's out there. I think this community is perfectly set up to do that important task. And it's exciting, but it's also dangerous. And I want to talk about that next, but we're going to have a song. Jesus has always been an extraordinary danger to religion. But religion was also an extraordinary danger to Jesus. And I just want to briefly, and I promise I'll quicken it up, but I just want to briefly talk about the ways in which Jesus completely deconstructed the religion of his day. Because I have this thought of total irony And that is, it's just possible that it's Q Church that's mainstream and it's everyone else that's lost the plot. If church is somehow about continuing the ministry of Jesus, Jesus did a lot of religious deconstruction. First of all, by the time of Jesus, 613 commands had been extracted from the Hebrew scriptures along with an exponential set of traditions and protocols. And you think, well, that's extraordinary. But then have a think about us. What have we, let's just for a minute say, we, the Christian church, what human things have we added? Moral expectations, secondary beliefs, ritual compliance, acceptable identities, correct appearance, and the enforcement of the ethical content of the Bible in cruel and contextless ways. Jesus did not conform to any of the human rules. The extent to which he conformed with the law is actually a very complicated topic that I'm not going to get into, but he he ignored completely the human add-ons. And he did it provocatively in front of the religious leaders. He actually healed no fewer than seven people on the Sabbath. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath because it's work. And we're told that Jesus was both angry and grieved by his religious 
challenges on those occasions. Jesus deconstructed a rules-based religion. And because he was the fulfillment of the law, he actually turned religion inside out and turned it into its inner intent. Jesus explains that loving God and neighbor is the root of all the law. Let me just say that anything religious that is proposed by anyone that doesn't have its source in love and its destination in love should be rejected. Jesus extended, because we can say we like that, but Jesus extended that love to be unconditional to our enemies. It's a little bit harder. And when the very people, by the way, they're great, those guys, aren't they? What they, what they lack in shirts, they make up for in hats in a big, big way. But those very people didn't get it. And Jesus very politely called them children of hell. We don't hear that very often. It's right there. So having deconstructed a rules-based religion and turned it inside out, Jesus then turned it upside down. The Sermon on the Mount has this impossibly high ethical standard that's set. And yet Jesus spent his time with the people who were furthest away from meeting it. He dispensed extraordinary mercy to sinners, sometimes in direct contradiction to the most, <clears throat> excuse me, to the Mosaic law. And I actually can't reconcile Jesus' ethical standards and his acts of mercy. I can't. And I don't say it trivially because I've actually written something, um, a paper, where I looked into it for quite a long time. And my conclusion is no one else can either, having read about 30 books on the subject. <laughs> but Jesus turned religion upside down and put the vulnerable, the broken, and the outcast at the top and the religious elites at the bottom. He inverted the hierarchy. And then he removed the borders of religion. In Jesus' only act of, of recorded physical anger when he overturned the tables in the temple, part of what that was about is the area that had all those corrupt, money-changing tables and the like in it, was supposed to be where the Gentiles worshipped. And the religious system was so indifferent to the people of all the nations having access to God that they filled it with that instead of leaving space for the people it was intended for. And it made Jesus so angry that he physically whipped them out of the space. We also find Jesus spends time <clears throat> with the woman 
at the well in Samaria. I mean, that's a story you could talk about forever. But if you were just going to pick a person who was the single most controversial individual you could walk to, there she was. And he spent time with her town. They had all sorts of wrong beliefs. And he spent time there bringing a message to them. So Jesus removed the borders, and then he left without founding a religion at all. Christianity was commingled with Judaism as a, a movement inside of it for about 70 years. Of course, the Gentiles had to have churches because they didn't have a Jewish context. It's really the Apostle Paul who took his theological dustpan and brush and tried to tidy things up a bit into something a bit more systematic. And he did that purely in the context of real church situations. There's not a single bit of textbook in the whole New Testament. And Jesus' complete lack of interest in founding a religious institution frankly just looks reckless. From our end of the telescope, we see that Christianity became the biggest faith on earth. But just after his death, when everyone scattered, and he'd frankly left nothing, it just could have ended. But Jesus was not interested in founding a religion. And so if we, if we just stick it together that Jesus deconstructed a rules-based religion, he turned it inside out, he turned it upside down, he removed its borders, and he left without founding a religion, sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, to the quest of this church? And I, and I think that's why it's my strange conclusion that Q Church has found itself into a mainstream part of the ministry of Jesus. And the church as a whole has actually replicated many of the things that he dismantled very sadly. And I've been a big part of that in my life. But just one quick postscript. There are some things that Jesus didn't deconstruct. He treated correctly interpreted scripture as if it had some kind of authority. He taught his disciples to pray. He engaged in collective worship, even inside the system that he criticized. And he wanted to be baptized by John, even though John didn't think he should be baptized by him. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But it means something. It means something, and I suspect that it means that not everything that looks religious or is a ritual is necessarily wrong, just when it doesn't reflect the love and reality of God. That's a big topic that I've yet to understand. But I note it because it's there, and I think we have to have the things together. So I promise that this segment will be shorter and it has been. <laughs> the last time I was here, I talked about being in the liminal space. And when Jesus died, his disciples went into the liminal space too. They were frightened. 
They were directionless. They were confused. Some of them went back to fishing. They're in the liminal void. I loved Claire's characterization of that the other week. And actually, she said that the spirit comes to us in the void. And I just want to affirm that and build on it just as the final short section. Because Jesus did not leave them all in the liminal space on their own. But of course, first of all, he rose from the dead. And that's the, that's the thing we celebrate today on Easter Sunday. I don't know if you saw the figure at the bottom. There's a big controversy as to whether that's the resurrection or not in the film. But let's say it is for our purposes this morning. Jesus rose from the dead and then he orchestrated a progressive um, scheme of meeting them in the liminal space. He firstly did it through messengers, angels. And then somehow unrecognized. This is why I say there's so much of the gospels outside the walled garden. What is that about? They spend time with Jesus, extended time, and they don't know who he is. And only right at the end do they know who he is. And then he disappears. We're not talking about that much, usually, on a Sunday. But then finally, Jesus appears revealed as himself. I can't help finding this funny. I don't want to upset anyone, but... They're in a locked room and they're frightened and Jesus appears and goes, peace. (laughs) Frighten the living daylights out of you. (laughs) So Jesus appears as himself eventually and he moves from comfort to instruction and then eventually he provides them with next. Jesus next was his ascension. And there next was Pentecost. But the appearances of Jesus through messengers, unrecognized and revealed in the liminal space, had a profound effect on them when they got to next. Paula Friedrichsen, who is as skeptical as they come, New Testament historian, says this, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that is what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. And she writes that because it shaped the whole rest of their lives. So their encounters with Jesus in the liminal space were profound. And it's way above my pay grade to predict what Jesus might do in Q Church's liminal space. 
but I do think he's going to do something. And of course, we call the Spirit the Spirit of Jesus several times in the New Testament for a reason. So I think, I think Claire's right. I think the Spirit will come to us. I think Jesus will appear through messengers, unrecognized, and perhaps even revealed in the liminal space. And then maybe, eventually, that's how next will emerge. But even if that's a long time, the experiences of the disciples in the liminal space formed them for the rest of their lives. It's not wasted time in the liminal space. So let me finish. I could hear those sighs of relief. <laughs> so, navigating the wilder places of belief is a special role and privilege of this community, I believe. I believe you're equipped to operate outside of the walled garden, but you've got to figure out the navigation, which I think you're doing. Religious icebreaking is actually part of the mainstream ministry of Jesus, and I believe that you find yourselves ironically in the mainstream um, alongside far fewer other people than you should. But I think this religious icebreaking needs to continue beyond your leaving journey in the liminal space and beyond because it's a, it's a core part of the ministry of Jesus. And then finally, Watch out for Jesus in your liminal space. Through messengers, unrecognized, revealed. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen. I think it is happening. I think it's going to continue happening. Thank you. Happy Easter. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest.